Happy Independence Day and Happy Canada Day to our American and Canadian listeners. And hello to everybody around the world. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and it just seems like everything has kicked right back up into full gear after four days of a respite. Industrial commodities have just, they haven't collapsed. I mean, let's not exaggerate here, but they have come unglued, shall we say, from previous highs. I mean, copper is down at $3.53 per pound, you know, and you look at the chart in June and it is just steep decline. So all sorts of reasons one can give. And I think the temptation is to think, oh, well, the Fed's raising interest rates, so demand is going to come down. I mean, the Fed has to be quite pleased with itself if that's what happened, if they can just like say a few magic words and say, okay, we're going to raise three quarters of a percent and bring commodity prices come crashing to the ground. So we're going to take a closer look at that story as the show goes on. We have a great story from Reuters via mining.com. Metals melt down as recession fears overwhelm supply woes. Now, one other thing before we leave this topic, which is oil. Oil, interestingly, has not come unglued. It has not unwound. It remains at $110 per barrel for Brent crude and $113 for West Texas Intermediate. So I think we have a very interesting study ahead of us. If oil stays buoyant, what happens to inflation? We have a big inflation print, I believe is coming out on July 13th in the U.S. A lot of market watchers will be watching that. The expectation is that that will be another blowout number, but then maybe over time, particularly as we see commodities coming down, industrial metals in particular coming down, perhaps we will see that inflation number come down in the coming months. And a very interesting dynamic of this whole situation is what if oil stays high but other major commodities come crashing down? What happens to inflation? Because obviously commodities are a huge component of inflation. And as we saw, like when commodities started to rise in the last year, inflation followed. Like I, I assume economists would see commodities as a leading indicator as the stock market is seen as a leading indicator of the economy. So that's what I'm looking at over here is this divergence between oil and industrial metals and what that's going to mean for inflation, if anything at all. So coming up on this program, I am very pleased to welcome back Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group, it's so great for what I consider one of the top experts in the world on the precious metals markets coming back to give us his read on where we are and you know what's one of the most fascinating parts of the interview. Business is booming at CPM Group, and there is a lot of interest in precious metals right now. And so, again, that's part of the reason I want to have him on the program. I think there is a lot of interest in gold right now, and you're not seeing – that reflected in price. And we could speculate all day really on why that is, but isn't it interesting that there is a lot of interest in gold, but we're not seeing it in the price? And what does that mean? So a very fascinating interview with Jeffrey Christian coming up. And other than that, I mean, here locally in Germany, I mean, they're offering everybody 300 euros. You are starting to see the first waves of political discontent on these energy prices. I saw it on Twitter yesterday. Nord Stream was trending. Now, we don't know if that's Russian bots or not, which is completely possible, perhaps even plausible. But nevertheless, like this was probably completely coincidental. But Nord Stream was trending in the morning, and it was a bunch of people complaining in German about high energy costs and in the afternoon, it was announced that all German residents would be getting 300 euros to help cover energy costs. And then finally on that, I don't know if you saw that chart yesterday, Bloomberg put out a chart on the German trade surplus and deficit, and it looks like it went into deficit for the first time since 1991, basically since the post-Berlin Wall era. It went down, and like you look at that chart of just the trade surplus and deficit. And it just looks like the German economy is getting crushed. So 
in the political circles, you, you know, you can talk and talk, and as long as nothing changes, you can just keep talking. But these charts, like, I mean, if that's real, which I assume it is, that's got to start having some repercussions in the real world at some point. And they must be starting to see it and feel it. And so finally they have announced, I mean, I think Spain announced 500 euros like a few weeks ago, if I remember correctly. And this is something that I think we had to expect this because uh, a lot of people actually can't really afford it. And their food prices are going up, like everything's going up, except for people's stock portfolios, right? So I think we can expect the political discontent to continue here. Other than that, we have a wonderful interview coming up with David O'Brien, president and CEO of Stuhini Exploration. And they have a pretty promising molybdenum deposit in British Columbia. So that is just a really interesting interview. And I asked David about like what is molybdenum used for? And so we get into that. And so that is coming up. So lots to look forward to today. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. Find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, let's turn to David O'Brien, President and CEO of Stahini Exploration, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today on this week's CEO Spotlight, I am very pleased to welcome David O'Brien, President and CEO of Stuhini Exploration. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here, Adrian. Well, it's very nice to have you here. So tell us about Stuhini Exploration. We did an IPO on the TSX Venture three years ago, and um, not soon after, we we obtained an option on the former Abnac Lebanon Project, also called the Ruby Creek Project near Atlin, BC. Uh, it's in the heart of the Atlin Gold Camp, and it's uh, known for, for gold. It also has the Adnac Molybdenum deposit, named after the former operator, Adnac Molybdenum. It's a, it's a large molybdenum deposit. The former operator brought the project through bankable feasibility, through permitting and funding, right into construction. And the co-founder of our company um, picked it up when it was out of favor. He got the reclamation work, and uh, we optioned it up from him. And we recently did a resource update, and uh, we have a fairly conservative pit-constrained resource. We had a, using a 0.02% molly cutoff, we had 433 million pounds of molybdenum. And that was just, that's just been contained within the pit. And that's, that's about like a $10 billion resource. It's it's road accessible and it's ready to go. It's, it, you know, it's very advanced. Did you say $10 billion resource? Yes, yes. 433 million pounds of molybdenum at today's current prices and converted to Canadian, give or take around around $10 billion, yeah. Wow, that's that sounds like that sounds pretty good. Okay, so you have this property. You IPO'd about three years ago. So so where are you now? You've got a resource update. Are you drilling? Now what? Yeah, the, the drilling's all been done by former operators. If you, if you read the tech report on the resource update, it does state that it's open in multiple directions and at depth, but it's already pretty well ready to go. So we're doing scoping studies right now. Next, we want to move towards a preliminary economic assessment. Our market cap is very low, as, as most people are aware of the, mine, the junior mining sectors under siege. So, you know, we're not really in a position to to, to advance into a mine yet. We're, we're, so we're looking for partners. We're talking to a lot of different players, um, larger mining companies. And um, we're actually really excited about molybdenum going forward. You know, the greatest solution to low resource prices is low resource prices. And even during the last cycle, this is the only project that advanced, you know, right through feasibility into construction. And, you know, we were in touch with um, Ava Medell of the International Molly Association in London and CPM Group in New York. And they're both very bullish on molybdenum. They're stating that we have to, 85% of today's molybdenum comes byproduct from these cal-calculic copper deposits. And, you know, Ava Medell told us Cadelco is the biggest client in Chile and said these deposits are waning and we need to go to pure play Molly. And there's only, you know, four or five big deposits like this on the planet, like our big ADNAC project. There's, there's not, there's not, they're very, very rare. It's also a climax style deposit, which is very ESG friendly. It's very simple. You just crush it and you float it. There's next to no deleterious elements released to the environment. Yeah, we're, we're excited about it. It's, uh, it's a beautiful project. Well, indeed. And it's funny you mentioned CPM Group. I mean, uh, Jeffrey Christian is actually going to be the main guest on our program today. So uh, that's interesting. Now, so molybdenum, there is interest in there. And, and so maybe just a bit of background for us. So how did you get such a project? And is this your first company? 
this, this is my first actually publicly listed company. I've been involved in the junior mining sector for over 35 years. So when I was going through finishing off a university in the late 80s, I was buying, you know, consolidated Sakine and prime resources, which, of course, the SK Creek deposit. And so I've been involved in the mining sector all my life, just not running it myself. And the co-founder of Stahini is, you know, a, a longtime fishing buddy of mine, Barry Hanslett. And, you know, I thought we could build an amazing mining company. We're both value investors. We want to buy assets when they're cheap and out of favor. We're both successful private investors. Our, our like my fly fishing business is, is best in class. His drilling company is best in class. Barry invented the A5 drill rig. And we've got a lot of business acumen and private sector business acumen. You don't fleece your shareholders or you know, rely on them for dinners and lifestyle, you know. So um, I draw $2,000 a month and I recognize an amazing opportunity to pick this asset up when it was out of favor. And uh, like our other assets, we stake them ourselves. We don't pay for stuff. We do not chase stuff. We buy stuff when it's cheap and out of favor and generally stake ourselves. And we have, we have access to pretty good deal flow. So that's sort of uh, the acumen of why, why we built the company the way we did. Yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty amazing. So tell me what the roadmap is then. As far as uh, how do you see this going forward? You know, you mentioned some partnerships, maybe there's interest. What now? I mean, do you take it on the road? Yeah, no, we're, we're obviously we want to get our name out there. We want, you know, we, why we were using the Northern Miner. We, we didn't spend a lot of money in marketing the first couple of years. And Molybdenum had a pretty big price uptake too. You know, we bought this project back when Molly was seven, eight dollars a pound, was out of favor. and was sort of incubating. I guess we would say we're good call option on Molybdenum. And suddenly, you know, in 2021, Molly had a big price up from eight, nine dollars to twenty dollars, and that caught us off guard. Mm-hmm. So that's why we did the resource update. But yeah, we're looking for partners as, as we move forward. That, that's our, our most likely scenario. We're also looking to break the company up. The, the Ruby Creek tenures is you know 28,600 hectares, whereby the the, the Molly asset is still permanent. It still has a BC Mines Act permit intact. That's 2,500 hectares. So the remaining 26,000 ish hectares. Are more they're, they're, we've got an awful lot of silver. We've got a new discovery called Silver Surprise. We found sixteen thousand and fourteen thousand and twelve thousand grams showing at surface. We have actually four different high priority silver targets, and there's also been intrusion gold discovered in the property. So it's in the heart of the Atlan Gold Camp, the largest old gold camp in in Canada is in Atlan, and most of that sits. So we have seven significant plaster creeks on our property. So we'd like to break the company up into a, a pure play Molly company, and and then all our other assets plus our Q project in the Yukon our Revelstoke Zinc and our Manitoba Nickel, jettison those off into a spin code. And right now we have 26.1 million shares outstanding. should also mention myself and Barry Hanslin and Eric Sprott own 40% of the company. We have 43% insider as well. Hmm. So it's fairly tightly held, our, our, our shares. That is impressive. And uh, so Ruby Creek is in BC. How is the infrastructure out there? Like, are you close to anything or is it pretty remote? Uh, tell us a little no, bit about kind of where you are and tell us a bit more about the project. When you leave the town of Atlin, within 14 kilometers by paved, by, well, you kind of pave road, they, they spray it, uh, but very you do 80 kilometers to the edge of our project. And then it's another 20 kilometers up the hill. Um, the former operator, Adnac, they built a, they did a $22 million road upgrade. So you can drive a Honda Civic right to the molybdenum deposit. You can take a the big, biggest mining equipment. The mine was under construction. They, they they actually built the camp. They brought in a scoop. It's also been through bankable feasibility. So the bulk sample, uh, a lot of the the metallurgy, a lot of the heavy lifting's been done. When we you know move the project back through feasibility again, we believe it'll be quite an inexpensive uh, proposition. So do you know the price then that this mine is economic at, or that where the economics start to really look good? Like you were saying, the last operator. They sold it when it was molybdenum was at ten dollars, and now it looks pretty good at twenty. Is what you're saying? Is it somewhere in between there? No, the last, the last operator actually, Molly had a big run up back in the 2002 to 2007 heyday, and all the molybdenum stock soared. This company had a 250 million dollar market cap and an 800 million dollar credit facility. Here we are sitting at 12 million dollar type of thing. Mm-hmm. We we internally believe, you know, you know, 12 to 15 dollar price range where it becomes economic. Right now, it's above that. So we're, we're pretty excited. It, it, you know, does it have a 49.9 IRR and an NPV 10 of three and a half billion? No, it doesn't. But it's economic at this point. And also, there's not many comparables. That's another very interesting thing. It's, we really like Molly going forward. We need pure play Molly deposits. We have one. Uh, we're accessing. We're very advanced. So uh, exciting times. Okay. And just to wrap up, maybe like a lot of our listeners might be too familiar with molybdenum. Are you bullish? It sounds like it on molybdenum. Uh, what is molybdenum and what do they use it for? Is that for steel or tell us a little bit about that? Molybdenum is a steel alloy, exactly. And, and we're excited for two reasons. First of all, traditional demand is from steel. 24% of molly used today is from stainless steel. 
and aluminum is now is used for engineering steel. Like you want a lightweight steel, you want Joe Biden wants to build on America, you know, bridge trusses. Even the Germans have lightened steel by 25% by adding molybdenum to make the, you know, the electric cars more economical. That's how you lighten and strengthen and harden steel is molybdenum. And there's no substitute for it. You need it. But we all, the World Bank recently stated that seven of nine green initiatives involve molybdenum. And people don't realize it's, it's a new green metal, like the big wind turbines and nuclear. It's all uh, it requires more molly. So not only is there potential new demand forming from existing traditional, because people want better quality steel nowadays. Even today's, you know, farming and stainless and um, in modern society, um, there's new demand forming from the green energy revolution, the green, green the, all the green. Of, of nine green energy initiatives, uh, the World Bank specifically singled out copper and molybdenum as involved in seven of nine. So we're, we're excited. That is pretty interesting. And yeah, it's almost a bit of an ignored metal a little bit. And were you saying earlier that there aren't that many basically kind of world-class deposits? And like, is it kind of hard to get molybdenum or There's, tell us a little bit about just the overall supply and what you know about that? Yeah, pure, pure play, well, this is a pure play molybdenum deposit. Sure, there's some gold and silver credits here and there, but we view it as a pure play deposit. And they're very, very rare. They are. You know, 15% of the world's molybdenum is supplied by pure play. And that's by Freeport, McMoran's, uh, Climax and Henderson deposits in Colorado. Um, but other than that, it, the byproduct is, is waning and they have to go. We, you know, the CPM group specifically says we, we have to go to pure play molly deposit. And, and same with AVA. We have that's what we're going to have to do. Otherwise, there'll be no molybdenum. So and again, there's, <laughs> there's there's Kitsau, there's Mount Hope, there's Ruby Creek, Malberg, And those are sort of the four big ones that come to mind. Certainly, Sinteras uh, and Daco and Thompson Creek were past producers, but the sweet spots are gone. You know, when you when you start a mine, a big open pit porphyry like this is the key is to have a, a shallow sort of starter pit to pay for it quickly. That's what, what you know, makes our project attractive too: is road accessibility, being permitted, and having a, a nice starter pit. Very shallow, very shallow project. It sounds like a very interesting project. So, if investors are interested, how would they find you? I guess it's Tuhini.com. Yeah, www.stahini.com, and they'll just get contact info there. And um, we'll be doing mm -hmm. financing shortly too. And, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's you know exciting. And these are these are difficult markets right now. We to be able to break the company up right now, I don't know if it'll be suitable to investor demand. We certainly have a very very tight share structure. We're going to keep it that way. Uh, but we're very excited about Malibdenum. And like I say, people it's very rare to find a teeny little junior mining company with such an advanced asset as this. So it's uh, we're we're very proud of that. And, and I'm also I'm most proud of my team. I have an amazing uh, technical team behind me, hardworking, uh, bright ge geological team. And you're only as good as your people. That's one thing I've learned in business all my life. I, I run successful businesses and surround yourself with bright, smart people. And there you go. Absolutely. David O'Brien, President and CEO of Stuhini Exploration, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you so much. It's been, been a pleasure. I'm honored. And thank you to Stuhini Exploration for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. You can find out more about them at stuhini.com. And turning to the website, Metals Meltdown as Recession Fears Overwhelm Supply Woes. And this again is Reuters via mining.com. And it says here, the opinions here are those of author Andy Holm, a columnist for Reuters. And it says, industrial metals have gone from boom to bust in the space of only three months. In March, the London Metal Exchange suspended its nickel contract after the price spiked to more than $100,000 per tonne. Three-month nickel is now trading at $22,500 per tonne, pretty much back where it was before the descent into chaos. Copper, aluminum, zinc, and tin all hit record price highs in March. Lead was the only LME base metal to miss out on the Super Bowl party. After the March meltup, however, industrial metals are now in meltdown. The LME index has just experienced its sharpest quarterly fall since the global financial crisis. The pivot in sentiment from super bullish to super bearish has been the February 24 launch of what Russia calls its special operation in Ukraine. Fears of sanctions against Russian metals helped prices drive to those record highs in March, but flows of Russian aluminum, copper, and nickel have so far been largely unaffected. Rather, traders are now focused on the recessionary impact of high energy prices as the Russian invasion grinds on. Continuing on, investor positioning across the industrial metals has flipped from long to short over the last few weeks, with systematic funds responding to chart breakdowns and downside price momentum by increasing bear bets. 
Money managers were net long the CME copper contract to the tune of 42,000 contracts at the start of April. The net short now stands at 25,402 contracts, the most bearish positioning since April 2020. The last few remaining bulls are throwing in the towel. Funds outright long positions have shrunk to a two-year low of 33,926 contracts. This is symptomatic of the broader investor landscape in metals, with heavier weight funds trimming passive long exposure and systematic trend-following funds selling into price weakness. LME broker Marex estimates there are now significant speculative short positions across the whole complex in the London market, several of them close to multi-year highs in terms of size. And continuing on China to the rescue, it's not hard to understand investors' bare rationale. High energy prices are fueling inflation, and central banks are responding by tightening policy. They are also starting to chill manufacturing activity. The latest string of purchasing manager indices captured stalled growth in Asia, the United States, and Europe. China is the potential bright spot in the global economy, with manufacturing activity expanding in June for the first time since February, as the country gradually emerges from rolling lockdowns over the first half of the year. However, there's plenty of caution that China's recovery may yet be held back by Beijing's zero-COVID-19 policy, with several cities tightening curbs over the weekend as new cases emerged. You know, and that's another thing. I mean, part of me just wonders, like, is this just a delayed effect of the COVID-19 lockdowns from, you know, two months ago? I saw a guy on Bloomberg actually just this morning saying how China accounts for 40 to 60 percent of the industrial metals market. Seems high, but I don't think that's unfathomable. So I guess that would be a serious concern, whatever the case is, the zero COVID-19 policy. Tellingly, Chinese players are themselves playing metals such as copper from the short side. Merrick's estimates the collective short positioning on the Shanghai Futures Exchange copper contract expressed as a percentage of open interest is as high as it's been since 2008. Now, the article skipping down a bit, Revenge of the Micro, it's possible such financing constraints could lead to inflows of metal at LME warehouses, reversing a defining trend of recent months. Total registered stocks of all metals accounted for 696,000 tons at the end of June, down from 2.36 million tons a year earlier. Available LME zinc inventory is currently just 22,050 tons, which is why time spreads have been tightening. The cash premium over three-month metal spiking out to over $200 per ton last month, even as the outright price was falling. Such is the disconnect between micro and macro right now. Recessionary gloom is crushing all micro positives, such as zinc's dangerously low inventory cover. So isn't this interesting? Because we were hearing about very tight inventories for the last two months. I mean, that was basically the main bull case. So now we get this macro, you know, tightening of central bank policy around the world. And I mean, and Goldman Sachs came out with like, guys, don't get ahead of yourselves. This isn't over yet. So it seems like not financial advice, but what these low inventories seem to tell me is this looks like a buying opportunity. And again, not financial advice. And I haven't bought any, I haven't invested in any of these things, but I got to say, this is all looking very interesting because, you know, it's like price leads the story not the story leading price. And so that's why these technical guys seem to me actually to be some of the most interesting people to pay attention to. Because in a sense, the story hasn't changed that much. We have low inventories and a challenging macro backdrop. It's not like we didn't see, you know, a challenging macro backdrop two months ago. Like in a sense, the story hasn't changed just the conclusion has changed on what the story means based on price. So an interesting study, isn't it? And just a couple of headlines, because there's quite a bit to go through today. Copper price below $8,000 as slowdown fears mount. And the copper price dropped to a fresh 17-month low on Monday as renewed lockdowns in China. And the prospects of aggressive rate hikes stoked fears of a global economic slowdown Denting demand for metals, okay? So iron ore price tumbles as China's demand outlook darkens. This is by Mining.com staff with files from Reuters and just a paragraph here. Iron ore prices tumbled on Monday, weighed by gloomy demand outlook in China. 
where many steel mills are nursing losses and cutting production. Benchmark 62% iron fines imported into northern China fell 4.41% to $109 per ton. And again, this is at 200 and, you know, almost $230 per ton last July. And then crashed all the way down to what looks like 50 or 60 December, January, and then rose all the way up to 160. Like that is, for an industrial metal, that is some serious volatility in iron ore, at least on these Chinese exchanges. Like, wow. So now it's coming back off after peaking, you know, May, June. Continuing on. Aluminum on steroids may be copper's next competitor, and some researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory are working to increase the conductivity of aluminum, making it economically competitive with copper. In the scientists' view, this work opens the door to experiments that, if fully realized, could lead to an ultraconductive aluminum alternative to copper that would be useful in markets beyond transmission lines, revolutionizing vehicles, electronics, and the power grid. And we have a quote, what if you could make aluminum more conductive, even 80 to 90% as conductive as copper, you could replace copper, and that would make a massive difference because more conductive aluminum is lighter, cheaper, and more abundant. Kirti Kapagantula, PNNL's materials scientist and co-author of the research, said in a media statement, quote, that's the biggest picture problem that we're trying to solve. So very fascinating article, also on mining.com. Turning to the Northern Miner, we have an exclusive interview with Wailu by Alicia Hyatt. Post-Norant takeover, Wailu gets to work on Ring of Fire assets. And anybody in Ontario will know that the Ring of Fire has been a big topic of debate. I think there was a premier, a couple of premiers ago, Dalton McGinty, who was saying it's basically like the oil sands in Alberta, but in Ontario, Wailu made a big splash last year with its battle against Australian behemoth BHP for control of Ring of Fire Junior Norant Resources, and we followed that story very closely. The private Western Australia-based company owned by Australian billionaire Andrew Forrest Tatarang Investment Group outlined its vision for Norant's high-grade nickel-copper PGM Eagle Nest project early on. The miner plans to build a net-zero mine that would process the nickel in province and create a future metals hub while awarding $100 million worth of contracts to First Nations-owned businesses and establishing a training and employment center for Northern and Indigenous communities. And most importantly, perhaps, it promised movement on a project that has been stalled by a lack of infrastructure and by disagreement among First Nations on development, invoking Forrest's experience as founder of major iron ore producer Fortescue Metals Group. Quote, 17 years ago, people told me Fortescue's deposits would never be mined, because there was no infrastructure to access our projects. We proved those critics totally wrong, and we want to do the same in the Ring of Fire, said Andrew Forrest in a press release last year during the takeover battle for Norant. After emerging victorious from the fierce battle with BHP and closing the acquisition of Norant in April, Wailu is wasting no time getting to work. And and we have a quote from Wailu CEO Luca Jokavazzi, who says that although these deposits have potential to be mined, the main attraction of Norant's Ring of Fire claims was the exploration potential. Quote, we love the existing mines, but we thought, wow, these guys have just scratched the surface of the exploration potential here. Exploration-wise, the Ring of Fire must be one of the most exciting packages of ultramafic rocks in a mining-friendly jurisdiction. So there was a real battle on between BHP and Wailu to get this project, and it sounds like the exploration potential may have been a factor. And scrolling down a bit, for now, nickel's the main focus for us. I think we need to show everyone what a world-class mine looks like before we start to think about the chrome. But the chrome ore bodies are there. They're the best in the Western Hemisphere. It's a critical mineral. It's something that the U.S. and Canada don't have a secure supply of. So this whole interview is a great postscript to that drama that occurred the entire, I think it was all of last year. It took six, seven, eight, nine months to resolve. And so now you can see what they were thinking. Obviously, they thought the the potential was worth fighting BHP for, and they won, which is pretty impressive. I mean, BHP is the world's biggest miner. So there is an in-depth interview there on northernminer.com on what happened and what Wailu is saying now about its newly acquired Ring of Fire assets and what it plans to do. 
And finally, Rio Tinto put Star Orion joint venture with Star Diamond on hold. Now, this was another battle because Star felt a little bit taken advantage of by Rio Tinto at one point on this project, as far as I remember. And then they resolved their issue. And now Rio Tinto, like a year later, is walking away. This is by Naimul Karim. Shares of Star Diamond fell by more than 50% on June 29th after the company announced that Rio Tinto had exercised its voting power to place the Star Orion South Diamond project on care and maintenance till the end of the year. Star Diamond holds a 25% interest in certain Fort Alacorn Kimberlites, including the Star Orion South Diamond project, through a joint venture with Rio Tinto. The project is located in central Saskatchewan, and we have a quote from Star Diamond, quote, Rio Tinto has advised that subject to fulfilling its existing obligations, it does not intend to commit additional capital to the project during 2022, Beyond what is necessary for care and maintenance, Rio Tinto also advised Star Diamond that it intends to conduct a near-term review of its alternatives regarding the project, including its potential exit. So you can read all about that on northernminer.com, another postscript. And also Ivanhoe Electric shares fall in debut after a $169 million IPO. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. And shares in Ivanhoe Electric, the latest endeavor of mining magnate Robert Friedland, were falling on their trading debut on Tuesday morning after the company raised as much as $169 million in an IPO on Monday. The Exploration and Development Company, which owns properties in Arizona and Utah, along with a battery storage business, sold on Monday almost 14.4 million shares for $11.75 each, slightly short of the $12.50 each it aimed for. The transaction, however, was still the biggest U.S. IPO since May 12th, when oilfield services company Profrac Holding Corporation raised $328 million, including so-called green shoe shares. So Ivanhoe Electric raises $169 million. Instead of getting $1,250, they got $1,175 each. This is with metals cratering. I don't know if they could feel too bad about it. And they have a quote. We believe the United States is significantly underexplored and will yield major new discoveries of these metals relating to green energy metals or critical minerals. Our mineral projects focus on copper, gold, silver, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, and the platinum group metals. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Taking a look at metal prices, just taking a quick look at the 10-year bond, which I always like to contrast with this, back below 3%. So again, it's just like this Independence Day post-H1, you know, as the second half begins, you just get the sense there's been a change in a few things. Now the 10-year bond is below 3% at 2.954%. That is 0.26% lower than last week. And turning to our precious metals... We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. Gold is trading at $1,810.97 per ounce. That is $17 lower than last week. Silver is trading 20 cents lower at $20.13 per ounce. Platinum is trading at $888.67 per ounce. That is $29 lower than last week, and palladium is trading at $1,943.30 per ounce. That is $30 higher than last week, so palladium is up. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.62 per pound. That is $0.14 lower than last week. Aluminum is trading $0.03 lower at $1.08 per pound. Lead is trading a penny higher at $0.87 per pound. And nickel is trading at $9.82 per pound. That is 57 cents lower than last week. And tin is trading at $12.25 per pound. That is 89 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is trading at $31.64 per pound. That is 86 cents lower than last week. And finally, zinc is trading at $1.42 per pound. That is 19 cents lower than last week. So What do we see? A continuing decline of industrial metals. Uh, Copper is noteworthy at $3.62. 
I mean, aluminum is still at a dollar eight. Like we haven't seen a complete unwinding here. Like two years ago, we were at below three dollars a pound copper. So it's not like a complete unwinding. On a shorter term basis, we could say that, not on a longer term basis. Two years ago, we saw $2.20 a pound copper. Aluminum, you know, two years ago was at 71 cents. Now it's at $1.08. You know, this is after a pretty substantial drawback up from $1.63, you know, in March. A lead is at 87 cents. You know, that's more or less where it was. I mean, in March is at maybe $1.11. Nickel is at $9.82. I mean, still higher than two years ago at around $5, $6, but it's not the $21 from before. Same with tin is the same story. Cobalt just stays steady, Eddie. You know, although two years ago, you know what? Cobalt was actually at $13. So cobalt has actually jumped more than the rest. Just once it jumps, it tends to stay. And zinc is also at $1.42, despite everything. So again, a drawback in the industrial metals, short-term, you could even say devastating, long-term, steady as she goes, you know, still aiming higher. And precious metals, basically a mixed bag with palladium showing some strength. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have CPM Group managing partner Jeffrey Christian, and we get his take on the gold market, on the Russian gold export ban, which I was mentioning last week, and I want clarity on. So we got clarity on that, as well as this downward move in commodities, where Jeffrey thinks things are going from here. It's a wonderful interview. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Jeffrey Christian back to the podcast, managing partner at CPM Group and what I call one of the world's most foremost precious metals experts. Jeffrey, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, us as well. Again, it's just so great to have access to your expertise here, especially with commodities and gold and everything just kind of hitting the the center stage here of the news narrative. Usually we seem to be on the outskirts, so it's awesome to have you here. So for openers, how's business? How are things going? We are way too busy. We, you know, every day we go home with more to do than we came in with. And there's been an enormous explosion for demand for our research and for our consulting and for our commodities and asset management work and our investment banking work. It's been amazing the growth in demand. And it goes back to what you were saying, you know, commodities and precious metals are front and center. And there are any number of institutional investors, retail investors, individual investors, mining companies, governments, industrial users who need information about these markets. And there's also a growing awareness of how bad a lot of the information is about commodities, especially precious metals because they're so secretive, but even commodities like copper and zinc, people are realizing there are major weaknesses in the supply demand data and the analyses that they have access to. And, and, you know, we're known as accurate, unbiased, knowledgeable, experienced sources for that kind of data and analysis. And it's, it's just been, it's a, a phenomenal year for us. That is so interesting. Yeah, I like to call you sober in a kind of a crazy, uh, you know, precious metals environment where gold people can get very unsober in their way that they describe. It's an emotional metal. Um, And I I do, since you mentioned the secretive aspect, I would like to remind listeners, we have a one of a kind interview with Jeffrey Christian on the secretive nature of precious metals. And I believe the podcast is called that. I would highly recommend that. That is one of the best episodes we've ever done here. So going back to things going really well, is that mostly precious metals? Is it everything? Is it 50% precious metals and then 50% just uh, information on other commodities? Is What are you seeing more specifically? It's more than 50% precious metals. And, hmm. you know, the, to, to clarify that, you know, the reality is that if you look at 
physical commodity markets, gold and silver and platinum group metals are like one, maybe 2% of the dollar value of annual production of commodities. But if you look at it in terms of trading volumes, gold and precious metals are probably closer to 35 or 40% of the trading value. So, you know, a lot of people say, I want to invest in commodities. And what they're really saying is, I want to invest in gold. But, you know, so it's more than 50% in precious metals. But we have a growing business in energy materials. And I say materials instead of metals because we include hydrogen in there. And you're seeing a lot of demand for information about lithium, high-purity manganese sulfate, high-purity cobalt sulfate, high-purity nickel sulfate. We also have started tantalum practice uh, this year. There were some tantalum experts. Yes, there are such things as tantalum experts. And we were able to pick up a couple of them and put together a tantalum research and consulting team. And, you know, tantalum is used in semiconductors. So there's a tremendous amount of demand there. And there are also a lot of ESG and sustainability issues related to tantalum because of its sourcing being sourced so much in the Congo. And the supply is changing and the demand is changing. So there's a lot of interest there. And then just building off of what I just said about tantalum, we're having a lot of companies come to us and say, can you talk to us about sustainability and ESG issues? You know, because A, they're important. And B, the industry that is growing up around sustainability and and ESG issues is overcrowded. And there are all kinds of people jockeying to be the arbiters of what good sustainable policies are and good ESG policies are. The UN is looking over people's shoulders. They have, you know, sustainability guidelines. Governments are, equity markets are. And it's not just the mining companies and refiners and users of the commodities that have to deal with this, institutional investors and bank and non-bank financial intermediaries on both the buy side and the sell side all have to address sustainability and ESG issues. And, and, and we're having any number of companies come to us and say, you know, look, yeah, I look at Barrick and they have a 156 page annual sustainability report. I look at other mining companies And they don't even have a report because it's such a big convoluted subject. They have an entire section of their website, you know, that you can wander through and try to figure out what their sustainability policies are and what their sustainability practices are. So, you know, to answer your question, yeah, it's more than half of its, clearly more than half of its precious metals, but we have a tremendous amount of stuff in molybdenum, manganese, lithium, tantalum, and broader commodities, metals, and mining issues. It's all over the place. You know, I think it's really topical that you're bringing up the ESG topic because, I mean, I've been talking about ESG a little bit in the last few weeks here on the podcast. And, you know, part of the problem, at least what a lot of the energy people will say uh, with the price of oil is that we haven't drilled and we could say a similar thing with the mining sector that it's basically been underinvested in the last 10 or 15 years and i would have thought that maybe we would start to reassess you know not stop because i think everybody's for a clean environment and but it particularly reassess the environmental sustainability and are we doing this too quickly should we be doing it a different way and we see this, I think it was the Secretary General of the UN, maybe you saw that, came out and was saying it's delusional to invest in fossil fuels. And so where I'm going with this is, I mean, you're a skeptical guy. How credible, in a sense, from your perspective, yeah. is is all this ESG talk or is it just talk? Well, there's a lot of it that's just talk and there's some credibility, but there's some incredible, a lot of incredible stuff. So if you look at like the International Energy Agency, they have different scenarios for energy demand and supply going forward. I think they're taking it out to 2050, which is where we take it out to too. And a lot of people use what they call the SDS scenario, which says, oh, if all of the governments and companies live up to their pledges at the Paris Accord, this is what energy supply and demand is going to look like by 2050. But 
we don't use that one. We look at it, but we use what they call the steps, which is this is what governments have been doing since the Paris Accord, which is a fraction of what they had promised. And this is the reality that the world is facing. So let's look at it that way. And then, so we use that, you called it skeptical, I think, you know, skeptical or reality-based. You know, this is, you know, one of my bosses in the early 80s said, Jeff, we don't forecast, we project. We look at where we are in the world and we project from where we are based on what we can see about the future because there are too many unknowns about the future. So we project using the steps. And if you look at that, in 2050, oil is still going to be the largest source of energy for the world, for humankind. Natural gas will be the second. All renewables combined will be the third. Coal will be the fourth, having fallen from third place in the early 2040s. And nuclear, which is probably one of the more rational solutions to everything, is flatlining way down at the bottom. Yeah. Wow. So you just have this massive disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality. And yeah, it, you know, it takes sober or level-headed uh, people. I, I, I kind of funny thinking about me as a sober person. But yeah, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> my friends in high school and grades and in grade school and, and university would be shocked to hear me. Uh, I, I meant metaphorically, not literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. <laughs> It, it, you know, it, you have to wade through a tremendous amount of rhetoric and wishful thinking to get at where we are. And that has really negative implications for the energy environment, the climate, uh, metals demand, uh, governance, you know, the whole of society and the economy. And you can look at it and you can say rational people would say, let's be doing A, B and C, but the world is not acting rationally. This is something I've mentioned it like it's nuclear, for example, has become an emotional topic. I mean, otherwise, I don't know how to explain it because it seems like it's gotten pretty safe in Germany or you're not on fault lines. And Germany is like the quintessential example here with them turning to coal, you know, of all things uh, over nuclear. Now, I understand there's particularities and it creates nuclear creates certain kinds of energies. And it's not, you know, it's easy to kind of oversimplify these topics. But to your point, sometimes, and maybe this is too strong of a word, but sometimes it seems like a lot of this, and I'm kind of all for it. We've been pushing ESG here for years, but I'm just wondering, it's, it seems a little misguided to just keep pushing as if nothing has changed here in the last year as oil prices take off. And there seems to be a real supply issue as some of the real experts in the oil industry, for example, of one of many, and you talked to Goldman Sachs on copper. So I guess another angle on this is, are you seeing a shift at all? Because I expect ESG to start to perhaps take a back seat to, you know, five to $10 a gallon gas prices. It is in some minds. And, you know, to be very honest, you know, there's this very superficial analysis that you hear in the evening news about why oil prices are, uh, you know, $109 a barrel right now. And yeah, obviously the Russian invasion and the embargoes and the trade sanctions have all had to do with it. But this is a process that had started a couple years ago. And part of it is a reduction in exploration and development and output by companies that say, you know what? I cut back on my output and the price goes from $60 to $110. I'm making as much money and I'm re-husbanding my resources on the long term. So there is, there is a clear factor there, which is producers cutting back on their production, blaming government regulations, saying, you know, I don't like the government regulations and they're, they're hamstringing us. So we're cutting back on our production. Yeah. And there's this tremendous amount of oil, for example, in capped wells in the United States and in other countries. And if you really wanted the oil price to go back to $75, the U.S. government could say, let's pass some regulations here and, and strong arm the oil industry to uncapping some of those wells and pumping some of that oil. But the problem is that the government leaders are heavily dependent on people who own shares in oil companies for their campaign contributions. 
So instead of doing what would be a logical thing to reduce oil prices, they take the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is our rainy day oil reserve, and they throw it away. And it, it represents like less than one day's worth of oil consumption. So it's clearly not a solution. It's just a public relations flash in the pan. And so part of the problem is government dysfunction. Part of the problem is capitalism, unbridled capitalism. Part of the function is that, you know, the government, we don't have Teddy Roosevelt in power. You know, we don't have a president who's going to call up the oil producers and say, dudes, it's time to step up here and, and be corporate citizens of our country again, if they've ever been. <laughs> now, turning back to precious metals, I do have a question for you on, well, a couple of questions on gold. And first of all, are central banks buying? And second of all, what did you make of this G7 announcement on you know, banning Russian exports? Would this make any difference? And I think Russia came out I saw a report, I don't know if it's true, that they're basically like, if the West doesn't want our gold, we won't sell it to them, you know, kind of nullifying the whole thing. What do you make of this as basically a gold expert? Well, let's deal with the Russians first. Um, yeah, you sure. know, I don't know the last time I saw gold coming into the United States from Russia. Now, there are companies in the United States and Europe and, and Asia that send their gold scrap to Russia for refining preferred terms, preferred quality. And so there is gold that comes out of Russia into the G7 and other countries. And that gold actually isn't Russian gold. It's gold that's being refined on a contract basis for Western companies. You know, But if you look at Russian gold, gold that is actually mined in Russia or recovered from Russian scrap, it has tended to stay mostly in Russia and especially since the war, it has stayed in Russia. So you have a situation where a lot of Russians are buying gold. They're buying more gold than they can get. And, and one of the big issues in the gold industry in Russia is that the gold refiners don't have the capacity to make smaller investment uh, products, rounds and, and small bars, investment-sized products to meet the domestic demand. Because in the past, investors in Russia didn't buy all that much gold from anything, so the capacity is not there. And you know, so you have this, you actually have a scale of things. And you know, first off, most of the gold being mined and refined in Russia is being bought at a premium to the world prices by Russian investors, people whose banks were closed in February and March and April and others. And then you have the Russian government saying, well, we're going to buy the gold from domestic producers. They're not getting it because, A, you know, back in March, they suggested for a week. You know, it lasted one week where they said, we're going to buy gold at a discount to the market and from any refiner that wants to sell it to us. And the refiner said, I'm getting a premium from private investors. Why would I take a discount to the central bank? You know, patriotic duty. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. And then there's the G7 governments. You know, so I think that that one is pretty much meaningless. It's it's again, it's like you know, releasing the strategic oil reserve. It's a public relations stunt that hey, you know, I am going to say that I'm not going to buy Russian gold because I haven't bought Russian gold and it's not a big deal for me. You know, so that that's that. Central banks is a different issue. What we saw last year, which was really interesting, was that more central banks were buying gold at a higher price. And we actually saw an increase in central bank purchases. And it wasn't Russia or Kazakhstan or China who have been the big buyers from 2008 to 2015, 2020. It was other central banks. And they were buying around $1,800 an ounce, you know, 1780, 1800, 1820. And then a couple of times last year, the price of gold spiked down lower and they bought. So these are central banks that, A, in the past may not have bought gold, or when they were buying gold, they were bargain hunters. And they said, you know, when the gold price went down to $1,240, $1,180, okay, I'll buy gold at those levels. And then the gold price started rising in 2019, and it got up to $2,000. And they said, no, I'm not going to buy. But when the price came off last year from $2,000 to $1,800, $1,780, and even lower, 
those central banks said, okay, I used to think that 12, 1300 was a, a good bargain price to buy long-term gold holdings. Now I think 1800 is. So we saw mm -hmm. other central banks, new central banks coming in saying, I mean, you know, and these aren't banks that are saying, I think the dollar is going to collapse and I got to get out of the dollar. These are banks that are saying, I just don't have that much of my monetary reserves in non-dollar assets. I have 64% or more of my assets, my monetary reserves in the US dollar. So let me buy some euros, let me buy some yen, and let me buy some gold. And th that's really what was going on. That has continued into this year at a lower level. So central banks, you know, last year mm -hmm. when the price went to $1,700, $1,800, and the price got down to $1,802 this morning. Last year when the price got down to $1,800, central banks, oh, this is a good long-term price. Now it's back to $1,800. They're saying, well, maybe I should wait. I might be able to buy it. You know, our view is you might be able to buy it $50 lower in the next couple of months. Some people think that it could go much lower. So you got central banks being a little bit more cautious this year than they were last year. Interesting. And do you think gold is in a bull market? And where do you see it going this year? Do you have a price target? We do have a price target for this year. I think that gold is in a long-term bull market and a short-term, I wouldn't call it a bear market. I would call it a consolidation phase uh, right now. So our expectation is that the gold price is weak over the next couple months and then starts to strengthen some in the fourth quarter, but not a lot. So, you know, we're looking at a price. Our, our current published projection is 1860 for the year. But most of that was in the first quarter of this year. And, you know, we're really looking for the price to be around 1850 by the end of the year, having possibly spiked down to 1780. We don't see that as a bear market per se. We see it as a consolidation period inside a longer bull market. So we do think that the gold price will rise longer term, just not this year. And that's predicated on the view that, you know, a lot, and you're seeing it in the market right now, a lot of people who were worried about the economy and a recession or inflation or you know, things like that are less concerned now than they were even a month or two ago. And so you're seeing some of the uh, economic risk premium come off of gold and silver, just as you've also seen some decline in the political risk premium as the Ukraine invasion, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has, I hate to say it, but become regularized in the minds of the Yeah, party. it's not pretty to say, but that's kind of exactly, it's, we've kind of become, it's been normalized, it's become kind of numb, we're numb to it, let's just put it that way. Now, conversely, the U.S. dollar index, the U.S. dollar, then do you see it keeping going? I don't know if you guys forecast that, but uh, do you have any takes on the dollar here? Because it seems like it's gone parabolics, which kind of means like, is this thing going to fall over at some point? And at that point, I'd expect gold to maybe perform even better because gold <laughs> has been keeping up. I mean, people have made the point. Gold's actually done quite well this year in the context of the dollar. Yeah, in it's context funny. of everything else. You know. It's funny because there's so many people who talk about how gold, why hasn't gold prices risen? And so, you know, on a quarterly annual and a quarterly and annual average basis, gold prices are at record levels. And they rose in anticipation of a lot of this stuff and, and they're still high. You know, our view is not that the dollar continues to rise, but you know, you did have a lot of people who were betting against the dollar. And now they're coming around and saying, well, that may have been a mistake. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's parabolic, but, you know, you're seeing strength in the dollar. And I expect that strength to continue simply because of the relative economic strength in the United States compared to its other currency counterparts, Europe, Japan, you know, tradable liquid currency markets, uh, the UK. You know, the U.S. is in better shape. The U.S. has some... Uh, Exorbitant privilege, as Jusquan Destang said in the 1960s, I guess, when he was Minister of Finance. So I think that the dollar will stay strong, and a lot of the dollar bears are backing away from their bearishness. And before we go, I just want to wrap up with a couple of more things here. So commodities have kind of come off of their previous highs here. They seem to be in a very impressive bull market. Now they've come off, say, in the last month. And fairly dramatically. 
what's your take here? And maybe, I don't know if you focus on copper in particular on that one, because I think we saw co copper's below $4 last I checked. I haven't checked today, but what do you think's going on here? Is this just a pullback and in a sense a buy the dip moment for commodities or should we be more concerned? I wouldn't be more concerned. I, 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 my take is that the prices, you know, just for the record, yeah, I have copper at $3.71 on the COMEX. So yeah, my take is that there was overly optimistic expectations for commodity prices in the first quarter and parts of last year, which drove a lot of commodity prices higher and that you're seeing a dissipation of that over-enthusiasm. And part of it has to do with, you know, it's amazing the waves that you see. You know, at the beginning of the year, everyone was worried about inflation. And then it was, okay, interest rates are going to rise. And then the Russians said, hey, let me distract you for a while. And then it was, uh, interest rates are going to rise. And interest rates are going to rise so high that you're going to be thrown into a recession. And we did have negative growth, you know, a contraction in the United States in the first quarter. But when you disaggregate the U.S. gross domestic product, most of that weakness represented inventory declines at businesses. And part of that was businesses saying, hey, demand is weaker, so I want to lighten up on my inventories. But another part was supply, were supply chain interruption, saying I should be rebuilding my inventories, but I can't get the stuff. Yeah, that's changing over the last few months. But the markets, the financial markets haven't picked up on that so much. They're starting to pick up on it in the last couple of weeks. But they have been saying, oh, we could be thrown into a recession. And, you know, hey, we had negative growth in the first quarter. What's the second quarter going to look like? And we won't know what the first preliminary guesswork on the first quarter or second quarter GDP won't come out until the end of July. But, you know, my guess is that when it comes out, it's going to show some growth because you're seeing inventories recover. You're seeing other factors, other pockets of strength. And I think that what we're seeing over the last couple weeks is an emerging realization that we probably are headed toward a recession, but it may not be this year and it may not even be next year. So you've had investors got very enthusiastic about commodities and they were buying all this stuff hand over fist and there were supply interruptions, which fueled that. Then they said, oh God, we're going into a recession and they've been selling off commodities. And over the next few months, they probably will pivot back toward a more optimistic economic outlook. And that will create a base for a lot of industrial commodities like copper. Yeah. So, I mean, we hear inventories are quite tight. I mean, is that kind of part of what you said there? <laughs> I'm not sure that copper inventories or many other metal inventories are tight. You know, actually, our base metals advisory for June is supposed to come out today, and hopefully, it will be out sometime next week. Uh, you know, and and I'll I'll see where we are saying it. Uh, but I think inventories of everything else are tight. You know, and and that continues to cause economic issues and concerns. Okay, excellent. And just finally, is there anything that's standing out to you right now? that you're paying particular attention to, whether in the commodities market or elsewhere, uh, in a sense, like, what are you checking first thing in the morning these days? Uh, what's got your interest? <laughs> I was traveling with a client of mine 12 years ago uh, on his uh, jet, you know, and and uh, we were flying around the world, literally. And, and the first night out, you know, he said, so what do you check the first thing in the morning, the dollar or gold? And And I said, you know, I check gold first and the dollar second. And I check gold because it's important to me career-wise uh, and as an investor. And I check the dollar because looking at the dollar gives you your first warning as to what to expect when you then look at the third thing, which is interest rates. <laughs> you know? But I think that we've covered pretty much what I'm looking at. You know, I'm looking at inflation, which I think inflation expectations will back off over the next few months. I'm looking at interest rates, mm -hmm. which I think will continue to rise, but not so much as to to turn off economic growth. I'm looking at revival and growth. And then there's this host of political issues, which are much harder to quantitatively look at. And you, know, you have everything from domestic US dysfunction, and it's really scary. You know, uh, it's really scary. You know, I think everybody in America should be required to read a biography of Mussolini because <laughs> 
the man Trump has said, I idolize Mussolini. And, you know, Mussolini oh. took power through his march by, by organizing a march on Rome, you know, where he had protesters march on the parliament and demand that the king appoint him president. But we also have all sorts of problems in, in various European countries. There are issues in the UK. There are issues in a number of other countries that, for political reasons, I don't mention by name, but we all know who they are. And then there are the global problems. And, you know, Russia has done a good job in helping sort of like rejuvenate some international cooperation, but it's also driven home some of the deep divisions that have gone on for decades that remain unresolved in terms of monetary, financial, political, cultural, social imbalances that are out of tune with where we are globally. And the powers that be have have declined every opportunity to fix them or address them. You know, so the political issues are more important to me now and much more worrisome to me and much more harder to quantify. I think you tied up all the loose ends with that final answer there, Jeffrey. That was perfect. Jeffrey Christian, managing partner of CPM Group, thank you for once again joining us on the Northern Miner podcast. Adrian, it's always a pleasure. Another fascinating interview from CPM Group Managing Partner, Jeffrey Christian. It's always just full of information, and I love the anecdotes, too. That's maybe the best part of these interviews with Jeffrey, so we look forward to doing that again. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, share it with your friends, and until next week, take care.